0: I'm Brandon Knight, and this is My Seminary Life. Here we are, folks, with another episode of My Seminary Life. I'm your host, Brandon Knight. This is the show where I sit down to recap all the things that I have been studying in my seminary class (laughs) And let me tell you folks, I have no idea even where to begin on this one. All this week we have been talking about the Bible. What is it? How did we get it? What is the canon of scripture? I had this whole sheet of vocab terms that I had to fill out about different, uh, you know, meanings of when we refer to inerrancy, authorship, canon, all these different terms. And I, I think the idea of just sitting here and reading off all of the <laughs> these terms is probably the worst thing I could do for a podcast episode so I'm, I'm trying to go as high level as I possibly can I've had 10 chapters to read this week I still have like two and a half still to go but uh, we're in a good we're in a good place where I can sit here and talk a little bit about what I've been studying what is the Bible and how can we? How do we get it? How do we know that we can trust it? These are all the questions that we have been wrestling with during this week. The Bible is God's word to us. Uh, Throughout the Bible, as we read it, uh, especially when you just start right at the beginning with Genesis 1, we see that when God speaks, things happen. Specifically, life happens. Creation takes place by the word of the Lord. And in the same way, God's word, the Bible, is his word to us, meaning that it is powerful, that it is speaking, that it is living and active, and that it brings life to us. That is the uh, supernatural idea of what's going on with scripture, is that this is God's word to us. It brings life, it brings clarity, correction, it is. God's, this is how, this is God's word to us. But how did we get these words? Uh, Going to a more conservative seminary, and also just being a little bit more conservative myself, they are teaching, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Moving the authors of the different letters and gospels and the prophets and Moses with the Torah. Moving, their, moving them in the process of writing the words. Okay, so There are, I think it was seven or eight different views on how the Holy Spirit worked in these authors when it came to penning the words of scripture. And it, it varies from one extreme to another. On the one hand, you have basically there is no influence by the Holy Spirit. It These were just very elite religious people who just better understood God than the rest of us, and they wrote down their opinions. And then over, over on the other hand, you have the view that the, that the Holy Spirit basically was controlling the people word for word, letter by letter, all the way through. There was no original thought in the writers of scripture's mind. And then there's the middle view, and this is kind of where I fall. I find myself falling usually somewhere in the middle in what is known as the dynamic theory theory. And in the dynamic theory, this teaches that the Holy Spirit was moving and giving the thoughts and giving the theology and directing what needed to be written, but the author could still write within their own style. Basically, the writer could still be authentic to themselves. It wasn't like God was controlling every little aspect of the writing. It's still very much this is how Paul wrote. When Paul wrote a letter, whether it was divinely inspired to Timothy or just a letter to a person, the style was still very similar. It's just that one was being directed by the Holy Spirit. The other was just Paul writing a letter to a person. Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, remember, you can always DM me on Facebook on my Seminary Life's Facebook page, or you can send in a question uh, by doing a message, a verbal message on Anchor as well. So if you ever have a question about anything I'm talking about, because I'm going to go high level, and I'm still trying to solve all this myself, because the big final project for this class is Essentially, we are putting together a study guide for ordination. And ordination is a big deal process. My brother-in-law just got ordained over the summer. He has been studying and preparing for ordination as long as I've known him. So like five, six years now, he has been preparing. So that's basically what's going on here is that for our final project is we're putting together our study guide for ordination. And so you know i'm still figuring out a lot of this stuff myself but anyway back to the main focus here i fall somewhere on this dynamic theory scale that the holy spirit was moving the authors to write and giving them the ideas of what they needed to put down but that the authors were still writing within their own style and within their the genre as well as Scripture, when it comes to the other views where it's you know the Holy Spirit is controlling every single aspect of the writing, to me, to me, that just seems a little too uh, religiously rigorous. That just seems like we're falling too far on the scale of there is no authentic worship of the writer in that process where on the other hand, where it's just like very religious individuals who wrote more of their very religious opinions, there there's no divine stamp of authority there. So why should I value anything that scripture has to say? Everything is fair game then when there is no divine stamp of, of approval on the written words. So that's why I fall kind of here in the middle with the dynamic view, because it allows for a little bit of, both. There is a little bit of, I hate to use the word creativity, but authenticness to the writing while also there is a divine stamp of approval on what is being written. But how did we get the canon? So, you know, the Holy Spirit is moving throughout hundreds of years to a number of different authors writing these words. But in time, how did we get our Bible? How did we get these 66 books? Well, we talked about that a little bit last week. If you, have, if you missed last week's introduction episode to Systematic Theology, I encourage you to go back and check this out. Check that out. Um, we talked about Erickson. He talked a little bit about how when you start with the Gospels, because Christianity is a movement of people following Jesus, so you start with the Gospels, These are the recorded words of Jesus, his life, what he taught, what he did. And you move outwards because you see that Jesus and the authors reference the Old Testament, which means that there has to be a relevance for us in the Old Testament. And then his followers and people who were close to him wrote other letters. They wrote epistles and the revelation of John. Like, you have all these who carry divine authority because of their relation to Jesus. So that's the simple answer of how we get our canon. You also have the fact that when it comes to the Old Testament, there are many places where it is very clearly stated that this is God's word to his people. You have all these books of the prophets. You have Moses who is receiving direct word From God to write, you know, the Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. So you have very clear indications in the Old Testament of this is God's word to his people over and over and over again. Which is part of the reason why the books of the Apocrypha don't make it into the Old Testament canon, whether for Jews or for Protestant Christians. The books of the Apocrypha, for those of you who don't know, these are, as Jerome put it, the books of the books for the church. These are historical books that are not considered divinely inspired because there are no places in the can, in the canon of the Apocrypha that clearly indicate that this is God speaking to a person who is writing this work. There's also some theology issues as well in the in the Apocrypha. I've read it for myself. For those of you who are unfamiliar with these writings, uh, the Apocrypha covers, uh, there's a good chunk of the intertestamental period. This is the period of time where God was not speaking at all. This is where the story of Hanukkah is recorded in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Uh, There's also additional chapters to the book of Esther. There's additional stories involving Daniel and a number of other writings as well. And there are some theological issues. For the most part, as I have read through it, I would say like maybe 90% of it matches up with the rest of scripture. I'm sure that there is like actual studies with actual numbers on it. But for the most part, I would go through it and think to myself, okay, yeah, this, this all lines up. There are a couple places that I was like, yeah, this is why, this is why this is not included in scripture. But, it is included in the Roman Catholic Bible. At the Council of Trent, uh, in fifteen forty-seven, I believe it was decided to canonize the apocrypha because this is during the height of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther, and a number of the teachings that Martin Luther was and the rest of the, his followers were uh, were against were were against the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church could have biblical, quote, biblical support for some of their teachings if they canonized the Apocrypha. Simple example, the idea of praying for the souls of the dead who have gone on to purgatory, that is a teaching that comes out of, I think it's 2 Maccabees. It's one of the books of the Maccabees is where this teaching of praying for the souls of the dead comes from. And so, that is how the Apocrypha became canon within the Roman Catholic Church. It was kind of a theological, political move to help support some of their teachings. It also was a political, theological move in 1611, because in the original King James authorized version of Scripture, the Apocrypha is included in there as well. And it was for political reasons as well. So, But like I said, Jerome, who is the uh, author of the Latin Vulgate, he was the one who translated the Bible into Latin, which would have been the more common tongue at the time. He included the Apocrypha into his writings, but it was because they were books for the church. All that to say, a lot of protestants kind of toss the apocrypha aside because of the association with the catholic church however it is a it is a good general idea to possibly read the apocrypha at some point if anything to help better understand the historical context of the intertestamental period, and also part of the time of the prophets as well. That's when a lot of the writings of the Apocrypha takes place, the prophets and the intertestamental period. So, uh, trying to get back on track here, the Old Testament canon is pretty well set because of its influence on the Christian church from its Judaism roots. Also, we have all these instances of the of God speaking very clearly to the authors that this is what he is saying for his people to know. As for the New Testament, it kind of follows a very similar path that very early on, the different gospels, the different epistles, they all were circulating pretty heavily among the early churches. Most of the early authors were well-known people in the church, John, Paul, Peter, um, James and Jude even, who were uh, relatives of Jesus. So their association with Jesus and the frequent circulation of these writings is what helped get the early canon started. Some of the letters that took a little bit of time for other people to accept were like 2nd... Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, they just weren't as heavily circulated, so it took the church a little bit of time to accept those as uh, divinely inspired for part of the canon. Hebrews never really had a problem, because to this day, we still don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, Uh, but even back then, it was pretty well uh, accepted that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Today, To this day, that is still a pretty popular view that Paul wrote this letter. Uh, There are a couple other theories now. Uh, The only other person who has ever really put up a fuss when it came to the canon of the New Testament was Martin Luther, who was not a big fan of the book of James because he thought that the book of James verged a little too closely to uh, what the Catholic Church was teaching about faith plus works. He was, he, he was a little skeptical of the book of James. But beyond that, there's never really been an indication of a time where a prominent person in the church was against one of the books in the New Testament. There was one book that almost made the cut, but ended up not. And I forgot what it's called. I want to say it is the Epistle of Clement. I think it's what it's called. I was listening to a lecture by R.C. Sproul a couple months ago on it. It almost made the canon of scripture, and I think there's just a little bit too much questioning as to who the author really is, and also the fact that it is not someone who is directly linked to Jesus and i think there was a little bit of like a theology like uh, this kind of changes things a little bit but it was another really widely circulated letter so it almost made the cu- canon of scripture sproll did say though that it's worth checking out i should i need to go figure out what that let what that letter is i meant to do that before i got started and i forgot to do that i apologize folks There was another gospel that almost made the cut for the New Testament canon, and that was the Gospel of Thomas. That was a pretty widely circulated gospel really early on, but it was a Gnostic gospel. And Grudem includes a portion of the uh, Gospel of Thomas in his book, uh, Systematic Theology, for us to read. I've seen people like on TikTok, or I've seen books at... uh, Bookstores before trying to claim about how this is a gospel that we really need to canonize. That this is something that the church really doesn't want you to read because it, you know, it changes everything. But you know, the, so this thing, this section of the Gospel of Thomas that Grudem includes in his in his uh, book was, ta- was a closing thought in the gospel where Peter tells Jesus about how he's going to dismiss Mary from their group because she's not a man. And Jesus says, you're right in doing so. I'm going to lead her to become a man. And if, because that's, that's what all women need to do is that all women need to become men in order to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm reading that like, and people want this, like people want You think that this is some, yeah, I don't know. Like, this is what people want. You want this teaching in the scriptures that teaches that all women have to become men in order to enter the kingdom of God. That does not seem, that doesn't really seem to match up with the rest of scripture at all. But that doesn't really seem to be, you know, very, how do you put it, um, popular of a thought nowadays. That doesn't seem very politically correct all women have to become men to enter the kingdom of God. That that doesn't make sense. So that's why a lot of times the, the Gnostic Gospels, there's a number of these Gnostic writings, that none of them made it into the canon of Scripture because they would have these theological teachings that would not line up even remotely close with what the rest of the uh, New Testament writers were saying. Grudem had one final thought on why uh, we can rest easy that we have the whole canon of scripture because that conversation always comes up at some point in the theological classroom or among scholars of like, what, what if, what if there's another, what if there's another writing that we have overlooked that needs to be in scripture? What if we found another letter by Paul? You know, what, what if like Marvel, what if, um, and Grudem writes, and I thought this was this was a very beautiful thought. He writes how God is a loving father who wants to make sure that He is communicating clearly to us His thoughts, His expectations, what His hope is for us, His love towards us. God is trying to communicate clearly with His people. So why would He withhold? something from us. If there was supposed to be another letter, another gospel, another thing, would he not have made that clear that we're supposed to have this in our scriptures? Just trying to use a little bit of a logical argument here of, we we have all the books that we need. If there was another one, it would have been evident by this point. He also writes about how it's clear in Revelation that this is it. This is the final book. Do not add. Do not take away. This is it. This is the ending. We're done now. So the canon of scripture is closed thanks to the book of Revelation. But we can also rest easy on the fact that God is a loving God. God is a loving father who wants to communicate clearly with us and so he's not going to keep hidden for centuries one book that's, not, that's going to change everything. Grudem also had a good thought. I posted it this week on Facebook, I believe, about how to add or to take away from the canon of Scripture changes how we as believers obey and follow and show our love to him. So there's that as well, that if there's a book missing, that's going to change how we worship God. And we need to be worshiping God as we are right now in a way that glorifies Him. So He's going to give us all that we need in His Word for that to make sense. For us to be able to worship Him in a way that brings glory to Him. We need the whole package of Scripture right here, right now. And we do. So that's what the Bible is. That's kind of a rough outline of how we got our canon, how we were able to land on the Gospels and the Epistles and the Prophets and the Writings and all of that. It was a lot. Like I said, that was 10 chapters down into 20 minutes. So thanks for hanging in there with me. If you have any questions about what we talked about today, again, Hit me up on Facebook, My Seminary Life on Facebook. Hit that like button and drop into our DMs. Or you can always uh, leave us a voice message on Anchor. And please take a moment to rate and review the show if you haven't yet already on whatever podcast platform that you check us out on. Or you can go over on our Facebook page and write a recommendation so that way people checking out the page on Facebook can see how much you like the show. Um, Again, I'm Brandon Knight, and you can follow me on TikTok and Instagram at just.brandon.k for more updates, silly content, fun, Bible-centered opinions, whatever. I do a lot of different things over on there. And that is it for this week's episode. Uh, Next week, we are going to be talking more about general theology, I think. Theology proper is the term. I don't know what that means. After that week, I have an idea of what we're going to be doing, uh, but we're going to be talking about theology proper next week. This was a very logical step in our progression of our study of systematic theology because if you recall last week we talked about how this is the, the Bible is the ground is ground zero. This is the beginning place for, the, for theological systems. And so we needed to take a moment to understand why. Why do we need this? How does it work? And where do we go from here? So maybe that's where theology proper starts next is understanding how we build up from here. But we'll find out next week. Until next time, I'm Brandon Knight. Keep on studying.